Good morning, everyone. All right. If you have your copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you to please open it to the New Testament book of Hebrews, particularly chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 27 will be our text this morning. As you're turning there, uh, as I've done most every Sunday and will continue to do, I thank you for your continued prayers and support as, as we are in this process with my daughter Emma. We're moving forward to coming home at the end of November. Um, and we're continuing to build on the things that she's been doing. But I really wanted to ask you to pray specifically for a few things. Um, as we're getting ready to make this transition that God, as he's been doing, has provided more than what is needed as far as the addition of the room. But there's always those little hurdles right now just waiting to get uh, the building inspected before the move on to the next step of getting the drywall and everything up. So uh, pray for God to move upon the city of Johnson City to get the inspection done quickly. Can God move upon a bureaucracy? You, I don't even say bureaucracy. Can God move upon that? Absolutely. So pray for that end. Also pray for us. There's a, as, as you pray for Emma's healing, things that we're trying to figure out what we will need. There's always a lot of nervousness with any change, even if it's a good change, the unknown. So there's a lot of anxiety as Jody and I are learning how to administer Emma's medicines and what it will look like when we're home, you know, as far as getting her turned and things like that. So just praying for God's peace upon us as we go through this process and to have wisdom in the decisions that we need to make uh, as far as her care. So thank you for that. As we grow in using skills, talents, as we grow in our work, whatever it may be, even though we learn new skills, on one level, we never get past the basics. This is what I mean. Take a, take a master pianist. Take Julie, for example. Absolutely. Master pianist. Julie can make a keyboard talk better than I ever could. But no matter how much she plays, there's still some basics that are always there. Middle C is always middle C. There are basic chords that she may play. Now, she may extrapolate them, make them fancy, make them sound great, but they're still the basic chords. Take a skilled carpenter. Carpenter may be able to, to chisel out of a block of wood the most intricate statue you've ever seen. May be able to build grand buildings, but on one level, no matter how skillful that carpenter is, that carpenter never moves beyond the basics of how to use a hammer and a nail. In sports, state basketball, for example, there's a proper shooting form you learn. All the joints lined up, wrist, elbow, shoulder, hip, knee, ankle, no charge for that extra tip. When you watch the professionals, you'll notice something. No matter what angle their body may be leaning when they shoot, that basic form will be there. Because even though you may grow in those skills, the foundational elements are there. The same is true in the Christian life. No matter where you are in your walk with God, there are certain foundational truths that will never change. No matter if you are a new believer or a believer that is mature in the faith and walks in the deep things of God, there are foundational things that will always, always be a part of your walk. 
And one of those foundational elements will always be worship. So for the next four weeks, we're going to take a look at why we do what we do. It's a very valid question. We're going to take a look at why is it we gather to worship corporately. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to take a look. Why is it when we gather to worship, why is it that preaching takes a, a preeminent role? Why is it we devote more time to, to preaching and to hearing a preacher than to any other aspect of our worship service? Why do we do that? Why do we read Scripture and pray? Are these things we just made up and thought, hey, that'll be a good filler for five minutes? Why does congregational singing play an important role when we worship? These are foundational truths as we gather together, no matter where we are in our faith, we will never leave them behind. So this morning, I want us to think about worship for just a moment. Gathering to worship. Now, I know that as we have gathered here, the 8.30 service and 10.45, there's a lot of different motivations for being here. Some are here because, man, you want to be here, you're anxious. Some are here because it's habit. And I know some of you are here because, well, you were forced to be here. Oh, I can remember as a child, going to church was never optional. I've often joked, I was a member of Clearwater Baptist Church nine months before I was born. Church doors were open, you were there. I could live with that. But man, I have to confess, sometimes Sunday nights were just hard. I can remember in the spring, in the summer, in the fall, you know, growing up on a neighborhood where there were a lot of friends and we would be playing football in the backyard and I could count on it like clockwork. I didn't even have to have a watch because I knew when I heard the of the screen door open, it was 5 o'clock. And I knew exactly what was coming next. Mark, time to come in. Got to get ready for church. Now, I wish I could tell you that every time Mom said that, I went, jumped up and went, Yes! But the reality is, most of the time it was, oh gosh. Why? Wait this morning. Why, why do I need to keep, keep going to church? Now, many of us may never put it in those words, but there are questions that we ask. I've had conversations with people. Pastor, why do I need to go and, and sit there with a bunch of people? I can worship God out in the deer stand. I can worship God on the golf course. In fact, I pray a lot to God when I'm on the golf course. I don't have to go there. Why should I do that? I've heard others say, well, you know what? When it comes to worship, I don't have to go to worship. I go to, to see people and make connections, and it's more of a, a social gathering. And, and so that's why I go to church. Well, I want us to see from this scripture this morning that gathering to worship is a crucial part of your walk with God. In fact, we're going to see from this text in Hebrews chapter 10, we cannot claim that we are walking with God if we are not worshiping with the people of God. It is that important. Worship is not optional. To the believer, worship is as essential to your Christian life as breathing is to your physical life. The book of Hebrews is written to a worshiping body of believers. And it's written because this body of believers is beginning to suffer. They're being persecuted. We don't know who the author who wrote Hebrews, but we believe that this book is actually a sermon. 
An exposition of Psalm 110. It's as if the preacher were there and he said, I want you to look at Psalm 110. And as he preached, this is his message. As he explains the scripture, but he's explaining it for a reason. You see, the church was tempted to give up on the faith. They were suffering. They were being persecuted. And so the temptation was very real to say, man, this worshiping Jesus, it's not worth it. And the temptation was very real for those that had come to faith in Jesus out of their Jewish background. Because at the time Hebrews was written and preached, you could worship as a Jew and not be punished. But if you profess Jesus as Lord, that was a different story. So the temptation was very real for a lot of the believers to say, hey, Hey, forget this Jesus stuff. I'm going to go back and I'm going to focus on, on the temple and the high priest and the law. And the book of Hebrews is written to say, Jesus is the only way of salvation. If you reject Him, where are you going to go? You want to go back to Moses? Chapter 2 shows how Jesus is superior to Moses. You want to go back to the law and the sacrifices? The preacher says in Hebrews, those, those sacrifices, they can't save you. Why do you think they were offered year after year after year? They can't take away your sin, but Jesus died one time for all sins. You want to go back to a high priest? A high priest who really can't intercede for you? You have Jesus who is the superior high priest. And all those arguments begin to come together as we move toward the end of the book. And in chapter 10, verses 19 through 27, he begins to give a word of exhortation, a word of encouragement, commands. In fact, this passage is structured like this. There are three commands that are at the centerpiece of what we'll look at today. Those commands are found in verses 22 through 25. You can see the commands. Look at the text. We're going to read in a moment. Let us, let us, let us. Commands, do this. Now these commands are not just thrown out there as if the preacher's trying to grab straw out of thin air. These commands are built upon two central truths that are found in verses 19 through 21. These two central pillars that the three commands are built upon are marked by the word since. Verse 19 and then in verse 21, since. And then the two pillars support the three commands to lead to a conclusion. How, how do we do these commands? And what's the end result we look for? Now with that in mind, look at the text with me. The Bible says this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth there is no there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries would you pray with me Lord your word is truth and we ask it father we ask you to accomplish your will this morning 
We pray this with confidence. For we know your word will accomplish the purpose for which you send it forth. So Lord, I pray that you would find willing hearts this morning. I pray, Father, you will find minds that are, are willing to be transformed. Father, by your spirit, glorify your name. For we pray this in the name of Jesus. And the church said, Amen. The temptation when we are in suffering and persecution is to lose focus on Jesus. Worship is a means by which we keep that focus upon Christ in suffering. And not just worshiping by yourself, but worshiping together. Now, worshiping is crucial because as believers, we have full access to God. That's the main point in verses 19 through 21. We have full access to God. Notice how he begins. Therefore, brothers. Now, the therefore comes on the hill, not of just for chapter 10, but what is preceded. Because you have a high priest who is Jesus, because he is the sacrifice that has been made once for all. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. Now, the holy places refers to the presence of God. And it's a way of saying you have confidence to enter into that. Now, I want you to think with me for just a moment. One of the truths we recognize about God is this. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. So if God is everywhere, doesn't that mean that we are always in His presence? Yes and no. We are always in His presence, but we're not always aware of it, nor do we experience the presence of God with the same level of intensity at all places. There is electricity flowing through these wires. Now you see the evidence of the electricity in the illumination of the lights. We see that it's there. That's like general revelation. You walk out into creation and you see the glory of God. But if by accident, or maybe by intent, I don't know, you were to go to one of the sockets that are, lines the walls, one of these electrical plugs, and you were to stick your finger into that socket, you would experience electricity in a far different way. You would experience it more intently, intensely, and more powerfully, so much to the point that it may even kill you. That's the idea that he's talking about here. God is omnipresent, but in worship, we have confidence to come directly into his presence to feel the presence of God in a way that we don't in just general revelation. We have the right to enter into his presence. Now, for many folks, that's not a big deal. It's not a big deal because we have domesticated God. We have made God gentle and kind where we think of going into the immediate presence of God as something that it's like going to your grandfather's. It's like walking into your grandfather's house and saying, hey, Papa, I'm going to go get a Mountain Dew and a Mountain Moon Pie out of the fridge. That's what I did when I went to see Papa. We say it's no big deal. But to enter into the presence of God is a big deal. It's something that is grander than we could ever imagine. Just as two men in the book of Leviticus named Nadab and Abihu, what it is to enter into the presence of God in a way that is not pleasing to God. You see, that's where we need to recognize that God is grander, God is more holy, God is more majestic, God is much more tremendous than we could ever Im imagine. And we cannot just waltz into His presence. We need to be prepared for that. I want you to think of it once again in terms using electricity as an example. 
When I graduated from high school, many of my friends went on senior trips. They went to places like Hilton Head and the beach in Florida. Me, I went two miles from my house to a place called the Athens Utility Board and spent the next two years working in a warehouse. That was my senior trip, as my dad put it. One of the things I learned there is that the men who worked on the electrical trucks, they took the utmost caution when they were working with the high-voltage wires. To touch one of those wires would kill you. So they didn't just go up there and haphazardly grab onto it. No, they would repair by putting on these huge, thick rubber aprons. You can imagine on a hot summer day what it would be like to be wearing some of this hot, thick rubber standing in a bucket, moving these wires that if you were to touch them, it could mean death. But they knew the power with which they were in the presence of, that without that protection, they would not last. What we need to remember about God is that God is holy. And because God is holy, He is just. And because God is holy and just, that means that no sin, no evil can be in His presence. But deep down within us, there is a longing for the presence of God. There is a hunger to know joy, to know peace, to know true satisfaction. So we have a problem. The peace and the joy and the satisfaction we need are found in the presence of God. But we can't go into the presence of God because we are sinners. That is like touching a high-voltage wire without the right rubber protection. So what happens is this, God in His grace sends Jesus who dies upon the cross. One sacrifice made forever. And by dying upon the cross, Jesus took God's wrath, God's anger over our sin so that we can go into His presence and be looked upon not as a sinner, but as a saint saved by God's grace, recognized as righteous because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, you and I, by faith in Jesus, have access to the most tremendous being that ever has and ever will exist. We can come into the presence of the one who was and is and forever shall be. We can come into the presence of the Alpha and the Omega. We can come into the presence of the one who spoke and all of creation came into being. And there we can enjoy that presence. You see, worship should bring us into that awareness of God and who He is. And we can do this because, according to verse 21, Jesus is our representative. He's the great high priest. He is over the house of God. It's very interesting terminology. When he says he is the high priest, and a priest is a representative of the people to God. The priest represents God. So Jesus is our representative before God. I take great comfort in that. I think of the times that I mess up. And I think, God, I don't deserve your love. And I know that Jesus is on my behalf in front of the Father saying, Lord, he's ours. He ain't so smart sometimes, but he's ours. And to know Jesus is pleading on my behalf. He's our high priest. And notice it says there, over the house of God. Now, don't think in terms of temple or church building. This is something far greater than saying he is the high priest over protecting. In fact, we understand what this means from something the preacher of Hebrews said earlier. Up on the screen, you'll see a passage from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Now, think about that. The son's faithful over the house. Who's the house? We are. We are his house. How do we know we are His house? If we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Love the Under Armour slogan, protect this house. Jesus is our protector. 
He is our mediator. He is our high priest who brings us into the presence of God. So the question becomes, how much would you pay to be in the presence of God? I was just curious, so I wanted to do a little study to see how much people are willing to pay to be in the presence of someone that is famous for a concert. How much are they willing to pay to have access to someone? So I just did a quick Google search. What are the most expensive concert tickets ever sold, or more particularly, ever bought? The top ten list amazed me. You know who number ten is? The most expensive concert ticket? His concert ticket going at $429 a pop? Barry Manilow. Oh, yes. He not only writes the songs, but people pay much to see them, hear them, especially Mandy. Number three on the list at $750 a ticket, Donnie and Marie Osman. Still a little country, still a little rock and roll. But number one, number one on the list was a man who was performing on his 60th birthday. As he turned 60, he had a concert, tickets were sold. Start Well, the top price was $1,073 for two hours to hear Sting in concert. Now, I think, why? But you know, there are people who would desire to be in his presence that much to say any price. How much more so should we be willing to say, Lord, I can't afford the price to be in your presence, but Lord, I want to be. And to know that Jesus has paid that price. Because in the presence of God, according to the psalmist, there is life. There is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. The things that we hunger for are found in the presence of God. And that is what Jesus has provided means for us to be. So since we have confidence to be in God's presence, since we have a high priest that allows us to be in his presence, here are three things you need to do, he says. You want to experience the presence of God? Here it is. First, draw near to Him. Draw near with a true heart. In other words, don't run from God. Know the access that you have because it's foolish to have access to God and not avail yourself of it. That's like receiving a gift card to Amazon for $500 and saying, meh, maybe I'll use it. Or even worse, coming across a gift card in your drawer and wondering, is there anything left on this? You see, we have access to God. How dare we not use it? Jesus paid too high of a price for us to treat worship and being in the presence of God in a glib manner. In other words, he says, seize the opportunity. Draw near and draw near to him with a heart that is confidence. Why? Why are you confident? According to verse 21, because your hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Our bodies washed with pure water. That is a way of saying that inside and outside, God has made you righteous. It's this image of being clean. He is saying that you have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That's the idea of purification found in the Old Testament where they would be sprinkled with blood as a way of saying, Lord, I am cleansed by the sacrifice given on my account. This image of being clean is carried over into the New Testament. In Ephesians, Paul speaks of the washing of water with the Word. Titus 3.5 speaks of the washing done by regeneration. Baptism is what pictures that. So he says, you have access to God because you've been cleaned inside and out. And that tells me as we draw near to God, it should be something that involves the totality of our being. God made human beings very complex. 
We have emotions. We have cognitive ability. We are physical. Now, with any experience, the more of those aspects of our being that can be touched, the more intense that experience will be. That's why worship should move us in our emotions. There's nothing wrong with having a sense of emotion when you come to worship. Now, sometimes those emotions may be a shout, Well, glory! Now, some of you just wondered what happened. That's going back to my early Baptocostal days. Sometimes that emotion is just a silence where you can just shake your head and say, Oh, Lord, have mercy. See, worship should evoke a response within us. And sometimes it's easy to say, well, if that preacher preached better, if that singer sang better, then that would move me emotionally. But I wonder, I wonder sometimes, are we willing to be touched in our hearts? Have we been so hurt by the world that we are so guarded to say, Lord, I'm terrified. I'm terrified of you getting down into who I am because, Lord, I want to maintain control. Worship should involve a cognitive factor. I don't know where we got the idea that being a believer means you jettison your thinking. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. So there should be a component of worship that we leave thinking, reflecting, meditating upon who God is and being stretched. And worship should involve the physical at times. Now I know as I say this, I may be in danger of losing my Baptist card. But there is absolutely nothing wrong in the midst of worship. Sometimes just lifting up a hand and saying, Woo! Thank you, Lord. That's why we stand at times to worship. I wish we had the ability on these chairs to have kneeling benches so we could kneel at times. There needs to be a physicality to worship. Where we are involved with the totality of who we are. Because all of us, every part of our being, is redeemed by the blood of Christ. So we come in focused and saying, Lord, help me. Now, the reason I keep saying us in worship, and I'm going to skip ahead, is in verse 25. Don't neglect the meeting of yourselves together. Now, we'll unpack that a little bit more in a few minutes. But this sermon is written to the people of God. To be heard together. Now, he moves on. We'll come back to that. So, we, we draw near. Third, second thing is this, verse 23. Hold fast the confession. Don't let go of what you profess to believe. Now notice here, this is a confession of our hope. Hope and our confession of faith in Jesus are connected. You see that in this passage in Hebrews 3. If we indeed hold fast our confidence and boasting in our hope. This is a powerful word. Because there are things that will assail us in life that will cause us to lose heart. Things that will happen that will cause us to question, should I believe? And there are times where we are holding on to hope and we feel like we are about to let go because the pain is so great. And that is where we need a body of believers saying, oh, listen to me, my brother. Did you know that in Jesus Christ, all things will work out for the glory of God to those that love Him and are called according to His purpose? Don't let go. In those moments where you feel like, Lord, Lord, are you hearing my prayers? We need to be reminded that, that through Jesus Christ, we have a high priest who, who is interceding on our behalf. On those moments where we feel like sin has got the best of us. We need to be reminded that it has not. That we serve a Savior who sets us free from the destruction of sin. That happens within the body. 
That happens when we worship together and we rub shoulders with one another to encourage one another to look beyond the ordinary things of life. Now, can that happen just in one-on-one conversations? Absolutely. But I really believe when the church body gathers like this, there's a thing called synergy that kicks in. Synergy is like this. Back in the old days when a mule was getting ready to pull a sled, one mule may be able to pull one ton, 2,000 pounds. Another mule may be able to pull another 2,000 pounds. So you get them together in tandem. You'd expect, well, if that mule can pull 2,000 pounds and this mule can pull 2,000 pounds, together they'll pull 4,000. That's logical. No. When those mules work in tandem, they can pull anywhere to eight to 10,000 pounds together. That's synergy. I believe when the people of God gather together, there is a synergy that takes place where we experience the things I've been speaking of in an exponential way as we rub shoulders with one another, as we are willing to say, Lord, in my mind, in my heart, in my body, be glorified upon this day. So we encourage one another, hold fast without wavering because we are reminded that God is faithful. Third command is this, encourage one another. Encourage one another. Consider how to stir up one another. That's a very unique word, stir up. It's used in many places in a negative way. To stir up problems. Unfortunately, many churches are known for stirring up the wrong things. He says here, you consider how you can encourage one another to do good works, to love. Consider how. That's the thing that's amazing about coaching. You know what a good coach does? It isn't just about X's and O's. A good coach knows what the players need. A good coach knows that if there's the one player that's slacking, they need a little bit of chewing out. That'll motivate them. That'll get them going. But the other coach knows that player, if I chew them out, they're going to start to cry and they'll close down. So I'm going to give them an encouraging word. You've got to know who needs a little push and who needs a pull up says in church you consider that with one another think about the words we say to each other do we think through how this could be encouraging to somebody now I'm gonna give a very practical application of this and I want to do this to hopefully hopefully guide us we're entering the Christmas season okay as Nathan said it's hard to believe commercials are already on the TV but they're there now that may mean that at sometimes there are people who may say you know what I've not been to church in a while I'm gonna go to church it's Christmas time And you're going to be here the day they walk in the door. Now, how will you respond? Some instances, people respond like this. They look at that person and, what are you doing here? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The the ceiling is still, still up there. Man, see, there's still poinsettias, just like last time you were here. Now, let me ask you, is that stirring up that person to good works? Probably not. They're probably thinking, I'm done. But what would it be like if that person walks in and you see him and you go up to him and say, man, I'm so glad you're here. I've missed you. Come on. Hey, would you sit down next to me and my family? In fact, I tell you what, we were planning to go down and grab something to eat after church. You want to come with us? I'm so glad you're here. Which is going to make the difference? That's the idea. Stir up one another to love, to good works, to encourage in the faith. And how do you do this? Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, 
but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. That word meet together carries with it the idea of the body of Christ in preparation for his return. The only other time that phrase is used is in 2 Thessalonians. You'll see it up on the screen. 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2 verse 1 where he says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered together to him. Same idea as here. As you meet together, as you are gathered together, and notice the timing. All the more as you see the day drawing near. Now the day is a reference to the return of Christ. He's saying if you really expect Jesus to be coming back, you know what you need to be doing? Worshiping together more. Because we know that, that times will be difficult. So if you really believe that Jesus is coming back, this is when you need to ramp up worshiping together and encouraging one another. Now, verse 25 is directly connected to verse 24. How do we stir up to good works? We meet together. But I think there's an indirect application with all three of the commands. How do we encourage one another to hold fast? How do we encourage one another to draw near to God? We meet together and we worship and open our lives up before God together and we confess together that our hope is in the gospel. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it like this. He said, Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. So we gather together to worship, opening our lives so that we can encourage one another in these ways. And, verse 26, that that worship will serve as a guard so we will not go on sinning deliberately. He is saying that as you worship together, you're encouraging one another to go to God, but you're also encouraging one another not to sin. With the view of God as transcendent and holy, and knowing you're a part of a body of believers, you press on to remain faithful and to develop a hatred for sin and a love for God. So this is an exhortation to, to come together. But notice even then in verse 25, some would neglect it. Some had developed the habit. Why? There was a potential cost. He's saying don't fall into that trap because one of the commonalities that I found when people begin to drift away from walking with God is this. They stop being involved with the believers in church. If Satan can isolate you from the body of Christ, he knows that your passion for God will begin to die down. It's always fascinating to me to read history. And while I don't read a lot of military history, that which I do read captivates my imagination, especially the group in ancient Greece called the Spartans. The Spartans were known as, as the military city-state whose army was incredibly, incredibly effective. They would train for their small children for one purpose, how to fight and how to defend their city. The amazing thing is that in their training, they rarely learned how to fight alone. When they marched into battle, it was shoulder to shoulder with the shield in your left hand covering the man on your left. Eight, nine, ten men wide going ten, eleven, twelve rows back. Shoulder to shoulder, the shield of the man on the second row and the small of the man's back in front of him. You keep going. If that phalanx was dispersed, they were then taught this. You fight in triads. 
And if your triad is dispersed, you fight back to back with a, a brother warrior. Because to be alone on the battlefield is to die. Christ did not save us just to be individuals. He has saved us as part of his body. Don't let Satan isolate you. Believe me, I know the church is not a perfect place. But it is still the bride of Christ. And as we come together to worship, let it be saying, Lord, you've made a way for us to know you. Help us, Lord, to walk in the access of your presence, to hold fast, and to encourage one another. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me in prayer. Nathan's going to join me here at the front, and if you need to respond in any way, we'll be here to pray with you. Now, I recognize with a message like this, and I'm preaching it to the people that are here, that you're thinking, man, there, there are a lot of people that need to hear this, but they're not here. You know, the Lord, the Lord will take care of that. But this morning, it may be a time for you just to renew your commitment to say, Father, I've been holding back in worship. Let the truth be known, you view worship as something to be endured rather than something that is life-giving. This may be a time just to say, Lord, search my heart. Help me not to hold back. Father, your word is truth. You have given us three commands in this passage. You've given us the reason for them. You've given us the desired outcome that we would know you and not sin. Now, Lord, help us to worship you in accord with who you are. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand together and as we sing, if you need to respond, please come.